0: south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 332, covering the week of October 31st through November 4th, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and our Facebook page. And subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, that's Abbeville Institute.org. That's A B B E V I L L E, Institute.org. While you're there, give us that email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition. It's a great gift read, uh, written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. Yours free of charge just for signing up on our email list. Of course, when you do that, you'll get emails from us. So please do not unsubscribe once you get on it. You'll get an email probably once a day, sometimes twice a day, it depends on what we're doing. Once a day, you're going to get our articles in your inbox, what we're working on, what we've published at the website, but also you're going to get information about forthcoming events, or you might get a request to donate to the Institute. So let me talk about those two things separately. First and foremost, forthcoming events, we do have a great event coming up in April of 2023, April 13th through 16th, 2023. It's at Callaway Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia. This is a resort. It is a beautiful place. In fact, in April, let me just sell this for a minute on what you're going to get when you go, if you're listening to this. Callaway Gardens is the embodiment of the Southern tradition in a lot of ways. It's the, it's the link from the Old South to the New South, and it's what I'm going to talk about in my, in my talk there, along with some other things. But it is a beautiful place. In April, they have a section of the of the uh, park Called the Callaway Brothers Azalea Bowl. If you enjoy azaleas in the spring, you have never seen anything like this before. It is fantastic. Uh, it is on a little uh, uh, there's a bridge on a, on a lake, and there's a there's a beautiful chapel nearby. But it has this mirror uh, pond, and the azaleas bloom all around it. And there's native azaleas. There's beautiful, uh, you know. A, all kinds of trees. It's a beautiful environment and it reflects off that water and there's a waterfall. It's just one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. Uh, also, they have, the, as I said, the chapel, the, uh, the Virginia uh, Callaway Chapel. Beautiful stone chapel out in the middle of the forest with a little waterfall behind it. It has a pipe organ. They play on Sundays. It's just a beautiful environment. There are miles and miles of walking trails, biking trails. You can bring your bike or you can rent a bike there. They have a Birds of Prey show. Uh, We are going to spend some time in the gardens. It's not just going to be about the lectures and the food and the fellowship, which you get a lot of, but you're going to have some time in the gardens. Um, It's just a fantastic place. I I can't tell you enough how much you're going to enjoy it if you decide to go. And we're going to have great lectures. Uh, We're going to have, you know, Don Livingston, of course, will be giving a talk, Clyde Wilson, yours truly, Tom DiLorenzo, Tom Fleming, Paul Gottfried. Uh, I mean, just great, great lectures, um, so you need to be part of this. Uh, you need to sign up and go. And we're going to have a lot more people, trust me, that are going to do lectures at the event. So uh, it's going to be a fun time, and it is over three days. starts on Jefferson's birthday, April 13th, so we're going to tie that in as well. This is just going to be a grand event, and this is the kind of stuff you'll get on the email list. You get notifications of our webinars. We had a great webinar a few weeks back on Robert E. Lee. You'll know about that. Uh, now, let me talk about the donations. I said you're also going to get calls for donations at times. Look, we exist on your generous contributions alone. If you like the podcast, if you like the website, if you like the videos, if you like the webinars, if you like the Abbeville Academy, if you like all of that stuff, if you like everything we do here, it does cost money to do all of this. We, we don't do these things free of charge on our end. It costs us money. And so I we're coming up the end of the year. It is November. I appeal to you to please, please, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Institute. It is essential for keeping the lights on, the mission going, to explore its true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Our, our adversaries, I won't call them enemies, there are adversaries, they could be enemies, but they are well-funded. Well, more well-funded than what we could even hope to have right now, by, you know, leaps and bounds being more well-funded if we would actually have people that would donate to us instead of something like the Claremont Institute, the Straussians, we could do a lot more. And so if you want to open up your checkbook, your wallet, and help an organization that has at its core a dedication to tradition, real American tradition, and the things that make the South great, Our mission is to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. If you have in your heart to open up your checkbook for that, look, $50, that's less than $5 a month, $100, $200. We'll take a lot more than that too. We would love it because it would really help us. But those are things that, all these things that we do, all the things that we try to do, it all takes money and time and effort. And so please consider that donation Again, it's tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you do donate to us, we are a five hundred one c three. You do get you do get a tax deductible uh, you know donation. So it is something you can write off on your taxes. You're making your plans for twenty twenty two. How you're gonna how you're gonna work your taxes this year? If you have any charitable contributions to make, please consider the institute. One other thing you can do that's painless. You can also shop with Amazon Smile, and every time you shop with Amazon Smile, you make us your your preferred. Uh, your preferred nonprofit, a charity, we get money, right? So every time you shop at Amazon, we get some money out of that. Just look for Abbey Bill Institute on Amazon Smile. We're right there. So you can do that too. There's all kinds of ways to help support the Institute financially. Uh, direct donations is a great thing and we appreciate all of it. Uh, from Again, we appreciate everything that every one of you do, even if it's just $5. We appreciate what you can do to help us at the Institute and, and our mission to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We are coming up, again, the end of the year. We only have a few weeks left of the podcast. Uh, I do take a couple of weeks. I'll take a a little time off at Thanksgiving, and I will take a couple of weeks off in December. So we're wrapping up. We're getting, you know, we're, we're not having as, we won't have as many podcasts the rest of the month in December as we would during a regular period when we do this once a week. But all that said, please consider supporting the Institute. One thing I do want to mention, those of you looking for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, we are working on getting that back up. So it will be back on the app, hopefully fairly soon. Um, and that'll be rectified. There was, a, um, there was a snafu there, but it should be back. It wasn't anything they did that's insidious. It's just that there was a snafu on the developer side and things like that. So anyways, it's coming back. Also want to mention, uh, there are some things we're excited about for the next year. The 1607 project, we are working on them. It is getting done behind the scenes. That's something that your contributions can help fund and push out there. We've got the 1619 Project. You have the 1620 Project. You have the 1776 Commission. You have all these things, 1776 uh, Project, whatever it is. Ours is going to be the definitive project because it's really going to help you understand what the American tradition is all about. And that's why we wanted to do it. And the, the real title of it is Virginia First. Virginia is the key to understanding America. It was It was the glue that held everything together even as Calhoun said, if Virginia would just lead, we'd be okay. So, if you want to, again, open your wallet and help us out, your money does go to help things like that. Okay, so, all this is a long-winded way of getting to the week in review, I know, but we are getting to a point where I've got to start promoting the Institute on a regular basis here because we're getting to the end of the year. So, let's talk about the material for the week. And one thing I'll say about uh, this weeks material it's eclectic but that's important the southern tradition more than anything else has some advantages over other traditions in america there are other there are other cultural traditions in america don't get me wrong i mean there is a new england tradition there is a, a quaker you know kind of a mid atlantic tradition there is a western tradition there the, but the western tradition is very much built on the southern tradition one of the things the south has over all of these is a real a real solid culture, a multifaceted culture. And when I mean multifaceted, I'm, I mean it covers all kinds of things. So, in this week, we talked about literature, we talked about religion, and we talked about cooking. <laughs> Those are big things for a culture. There is nothing in New England that compares there's nothing in the mid-atlantic states that compares there's nothing in any other part of the United States that compares except for the South and then you throw in music and the South really has the advantage over every other group southerners do over every other group in American society to have a real tangible traditional culture that's based on the things that make a culture possible and I want to talk about a quote from Sam Smith in the piece that he wrote on southern religion and southern theology because it's so important he says something at the end of that piece that again highlights this position and why the south is not ideological the south is traditional so let's just first start with edgar Allan poe uh, the piece we ran on monday of course it was halloween and we've done some things with Halloween before at the Abbeville Institute. We've talked about you know, the, the greatest uh, ghost story ever written by William Gilmore Sims. Uh, we, but you know, Poe wrote ghost stories too. And we were trying to look for a ghost story from Poe, something we could put up there. But this little piece by Alan Tate, it was an introduction to a, a book of collected poems by Edgar Allan Poe. It's about Poe the poet. And what Tate does here I find interesting. Of course, Alan Tate is one of the fugitive agrarians. Uh, He was such an important Southern literary critic. He was a poet laureate of the United States at one point. And what Tate does in this this particular essay is interesting. He points back to Poe and Poe's own misery in life as being his, his isolation in many ways, as being the driving force behind his poetry. And if you read the poetry in that way, you get it. I mean, The Raven. He actually calls The Raven a really awful poem. But it's so awful, it's good. He says it's not a very well-written poem, but it's really good. And Poe wrote most of his poems in his early 20s. So he was... and This is an important thing to say about uh, people in your early 20s, right? If you're listening to this and you're someone in your early 20s, write, produce your art, do what you can in your 20s, because that's when you have the most energy... The most intellectual juice is flowing. You really can capitalize on those things. As you get older, it's harder to do. Uh, but when you're in your 20s, it matters. You've got some energy and some talent and use it. Don't waste it. If I could encourage any of the young people to listen to this or any young people, use that talent in your 20s to the best of your advantage. But Poe is writing these poetry, his poems in his 20s. And Tate focuses on a couple of poems that are a little more obscure, uh, but he talks about Poe's melancholy and his his isolation, his individualism in that. And um, look, Poe is a product of the South. Poe hated New England poetry. He hated New England literature. He did not like it. He thought the people in New England had a stranglehold on American literature, unjustified stranglehold, and he wanted to break that stranglehold. It's why he worked so hard at various Southern literary magazines trying to do that in writing his work. Poe was a Southerner to his core. uh, Look, uh, a disillusioned man at times, and he had a horrible family life. I mean, he just had some horrible things happen to him. And of course, his death is tragic. Nobody even still knows to this day what happened. But the fact is, Poe was trying through his poetry to express this isolation in ways that um, resonate with people to this day. Poe was in many ways, one of the most important literary figures the United States has ever produced, and he would not have been who he was without the South, as Alan Tate makes clear in this particular essay. Poe was a Southerner. Poe was a Southerner. So I say that because we also have, we had this year, we had that video by uh, Bill Wilson, you know, America's greatest author or writer, William Faulkner, a Southerner. And you have so many others that you could put in that in that category, who were Southerners, who are great writers, great poets, people that have uh, you know really exemplified what Southern tradition, Southern culture is all about. They've been critical of it, yes. And I think there's you, you cannot have a culture without critics. If you have a culture without critics, you don't really have a culture. Uh, you, traditional South critical of that, yes, but again. You cannot have these things without critics. That means you have something to criticize. You have something real and tangible to actually work against. And so literature and Southern literary figures are so important for the American experience and none more important than Poe. This is what I said when I started this, that Poe, and we, we have pieces on religion, literature, cooking this week, and... Um, and of course, a military tradition, which is also interesting. But Poe really does help, or does show. He exemplifies this multifaceted culture of the South, which leads to tradition. Okay. So that piece was great. I really liked this this uh, piece by Alan Tate. It came out in 1968, so it's not new. It's uh, you know almost rocking on um, 60 years now, uh, but. Uh, the piece on Tuesday, Valerie Protopapa's "Statesman versus Vandals. This actually gets to the heart of what's going on in, uh, in the federal government right now. And it, it deals with art. So I, I forgot about the visual arts. Southerners are very good at that too. Architecture, the visual arts. The thing that's really brought people out of the woodwork to oppose this naming commission is not the base names. Uh, renaming Fort Benning to Fort Moore is not going to rile people up most people don't care most people in america don't go to fort benning they don't go to to uh fort bragg they don't do any of that they don't go to any of these places now you have military you have soldiers moving through these areas and so you could say that i mean the soldiers could have a vested interest in keeping the name or not but the fact is most americans aren't too concerned about that but when the Proposal was made not just to change military base names or try to get rid of Confederate images or or, uh, references on military bases, but to take down a monument that's in a cemetery. This is the real issue. The monument is in a cemetery. It's in Arlington National Cemetery. It was put there because William McKinley as President of the United States, a Republican who actually was a major in the Union Army, who was shot at by Confederates, decided that the South needed a monument and the spirit of reconciliation and healing to honor its dead. There were over 100 people buried in Arlington Cemetery from the South, Confederate soldiers. And so the Congress in 1900, 1901, ordered that these people be reinterred where in a Confederate section with a monument to mark the place where they were buried. So this is like a headstone for all 132 of these people in this area. Now, there are other monuments in the, in the cemetery. We, of course, have the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. There's also a monument to over 2,000 men, the bones of those men who were just brought to Arlington and buried in a mass grave. And we know there's Confederate soldiers under those in that, but we don't know who they are. These were unknown men. And so we have this beautiful work of art designed by Ezekiel Moses, who was a Jewish Confederate. And, uh, I mean, that part of it's being lost, right? Here's a Jewish man uh, de- designing a monument that went to Arlington and was dedicated by Woodrow Wilson on Jefferson Davis's birthday in 1914. Now, this is not the lost cause. The the real criticism that Ty Saigeli and other members of the committee, the naming commission, had for the monument is that it was based on false history, fake history. And the real ire was directed at an image of a slave holding a baby and crying as the soldier is going off to war. And this shows supposedly the traditional uh, loyal slave, which... People like Ty Sajuli says is fake history. And then you have an image of what appears to be a slave go, marching off with Confederate soldiers to war. This is the imagery that these people say is, is highly problematic because it creates a false history. It's a lost cause history. Well, is that necessarily true? Now, Valerie Protopapas gets into things. She's talking you know, statesmen versus vandals. Vandals just want to tear stuff down, and statesmen want to do things for the good of the whole. And this was a reconciliationist monument. It's what the Ty and David Blights and all these dopes really don't want in America anymore. It's a beautiful piece of art that should not be taken down. It is barbaric to do it. Without question, it's barbaric to do it. So, you have people like Booker T. Washington, who wrote in his autobiography, Up from Slavery, that while all the slaves that he knew wanted to be free, and there's, I mean, to think that otherwise, you would be a fool. You'd be a fool to think there's nothing to that. Of course, people want to be free. Of course, they would. But he also said that slaves would defend with their lives and protect with their lives the white children and the homes and property left behind. In other words, he is saying in the early 20th century exactly what this monument shows. That is the thing that peas, these dopes, can't get their heads around. This was the case throughout the South. There was no large-scale slave rebellion in the South. Why? Because they weren't going to do it. It wasn't because they were going to be violently put down. It's because they had no thought of it. Because that would have been seen as an attack on these people that many of them did love as their own in some ways. I mean, look... We have, uh, we have Washington also saying there that the slaves would weep and mourn the deaths of uh, the people, the, the families that own them, right? I mean, this is something that happened. It's going to happen. But if supposedly, that is fake history. The other thing about the, the slave marching off to war with the Confederate soldiers. The argument is, of course, this portrays black Confederates, and we know there weren't any black Confederates. Well, again, that's debatable whether there are any black confederates. Earl Iams has been at one of our conferences and said, yeah, there's confederates of color. That's what he calls them, confederates of color. Uh, The monument itself made no no mention of black confederates. It did call that person a body servant when they were actually designing it. So it was clear the person wasn't being portrayed as a soldier, but as a body servant, but loyally marching off, wearing the uniform, which is what many of them did. Uh, And... As part of the cause. I mean, they thought of themselves as part of it. There's documented evidence of this. So how is this fake history? Why are these people like Ty Siderley and Kevin Levine and other dopes trying to rewrite black history? Why do they think they're that superior and they can do this? Why are they trying to deny black people in America their history? Why are they doing this? Well, because it doesn't work for them politically. They have to create divisiveness. They have to create hate and vitriol. They have to do it. They can't have reconciliation. Reconciliation doesn't create a climate and environment where they can actually win anything. So they have to do it. And they have to tear down monuments like this. And they have to tear down art. And they have to replace it with garbage. In fact, all Sigeli wants to do is leave a slab of granite there. How ridiculous. Again, who are the barbarians? Who are the vandals? Well, of course these people are and they're being called out for it now and I'm not certain anything's going to going to change the direction of this but I think people did see when when this proposed that was the one that really frustrated people because for years we were told we'll just keep them in cemeteries we'll put them in museums of course when they put them in museums they put them in they don't they don't actually do any they just put them in like toppled or paint all over them that's a real you know showing real museum work there um instead of doing it the way they should where they have it in all their glory of these statues right so, It's a they're doing it as a political statement still. But we were told they belong in museums, they belong in cemeteries. So here's one in a cemetery we got to tear that one down too. You see, they don't want to stop. This is this is this is a French revolutionary style restructuring of America. More importantly, it's like a leninist revolutionary style restructuring of America. This is what they really want. But it's coming from the outside in and that's the problem. Now, again, you have to have a real, tangible culture to have a tradition, and it can't be based on ideology. And this is what Sam Smith gets at in his piece, James Henley Thornwell, R. L. Dabney, and the Shaping of Southern Theology. Now, this is from our summer school from 2004, and I want to read one very important line from this. Uh, I have to, I have to uh, find it in the piece. Um, He says, in conclusion, I want to say that at the beginning of this paper, I mentioned that Dabney and Thornwell impacted their culture in a lasting way. Impacted their culture in a lasting way. Maybe that's backwards, or at least the wrong emphasis. One of the most important questions, maybe the most important question, we can ask about religion in America is this. Why did orthodoxy take root and remain in southern culture unlike anywhere else in America and even the world? He says, I've talked about things like the impact of Scottish common sense on men like Dabney and Thornwell. But as real as these outside influences were on both of these men, I really don't think that it takes us far enough. Many, for example, were influenced by Scottish common sense with very different results. As Clyde said yesterday in his talk in Emmy Bradford, ideology does not create a society, and I'd say philosophy doesn't either. Philosophy or ideology must must first go through the filter of culture. Culture establishes for the individual what is important, what should be sought after, and what should be shunned. Culture births, incubates, and matures desire. Culture and place provide the necessary context that gives meaning, or should I say reality. Thornwell and Dabney rejected innovation and negation and accepted revelation. They rejected abstraction and compartmentalization and adopted reality. They rejected centralization and force and embraced a reserved posture of faith. But why? I would suggest that its secret lies in what Dr. Wilson was talking about on Bradford, this wonderful definition of, of the South that Bradford gives a vital, long lasting bond, this corporate identity assumed by those who have contributed to it. What is this vital, long lasting bond? What is this makeup? How do we discover it? Understand it? Well, I think one of the best ways is to do what we're doing this week to go to the text, to seek to understand and appreciate who these people are, what they were thinking what they were writing, and why they were writing it. And I would say if you want to understand the older religiousness of the South, I can't think of a better place to start than with James Henley Thornwell and Robert Louis Dabney. Now again, go back to that point he makes about culture and tradition. Culture has to be the root of all of it. You cannot have ideology and tradition without culture. And culture is rooted in something else. It's something bigger. It's not an abstraction. It's a real tangible thing. And the South has it with art with literature, with music, with religion, with a military tradition. It has it. The reason Southerners have been willing to go off and fight and die so often is because there is a culture that allows for that. And it's a heroic culture. And you know what? When you take down Lee and you take down Stonewall Jackson and you take down the Southern leaders, you take down part of what made America, the American military <laughs> military great, you take it down. And when you take that away, what are you left with? Well, we're left with people with a different type of fighting style, like William T. Sherman, who believed in abuse and nasty imperialism. You take away a vital part of American society. and That's the key to understanding what's happening with people like Ty Sigerley. That's why it doesn't work in their worldview. It can't work because Ty Sigerley is a tyrant, pure and simple. A cultural tyrant, but nevertheless a tyrant. And then you had the piece on Thursday, uh, Mary Randolph, the South's first celebrity chef. This is a really interesting piece about uh, Mary Randolph, who wrote this book, *The Virginia Housewife*, or the or the uh, or the uh, I'm sorry, *The Virginia Housewife*. Excuse me, the name of the book, 1824. Um, and as uh, as Hall states. Uh, To say this cookbook changed not only the South, but the American culinary world would be something of an understatement. What we would now call a bestseller, Randolph's cookbook went through 19 printings prior to 1860. This is a Southern woman of the Randolph family. She married a cousin, another Randolph. And this was seen as the quintessential book about not just cooking, but about living in the South, or a woman in the South. And as Hall says, Mary Randolph, like many Southerners to to this day, take this Jeffersonian view of practical but limited government. The government should resemble the family. For anyone who has had to suffer through family Thanksgiving meals that devolve into arguments and fights, suffice it to say that too much family and togetherness is a bad thing. Likewise, a government should be well run and Financially, uh, financially sensible with the expenditures of funds because the funds ultimately come the family and when mismanaged, horribly hurt a family. The same is true with government. When it gets too big and out of control, bad things happen. If that is not the Southern traditional view of politics distilled into a simple cooking recipe, I do not know what is. And he says, of course, even beyond that, the recipes, if you're a foodie, are important. Um, and there's been a recent cookbook, uh, Christopher E. Hendricks, old Southern cookery, Mary Randolph's recipes from America's first regional cookbook adapted for today's kitchen. And so this idea of food, food ways, uh, you have a lot of lefties, um, get into this. Uh, there was a book, uh, the pot liquor papers, right. You, uh, that came out not long ago. And, uh, that this idea, you know, of the Southern foodways. A lot of lefties have gotten into this, and of course, uh, this created a problem for the for the leadership of this new new trend because they were mostly white and male, and that wasn't going to fit with this woke ideology. So um, some of that had to uh, had to go. But regardless. Uh, what I find fascinating, of course, is that people recognize that Southern food is preferable. In fact, there was, you know, David Hackett Fisher pointed that, pointed this out in Albion Seed. You know, Virginians dined, Yankees just ate. And that is a key to understanding Southern food ways. You know, the the, the Southern meal was something of an event. And so uh, that part of the South certainly is still there and how Southerners eat. Now, we don't always eat healthy, healthy food, right? Uh, if Southerners eat a lot of bad food... Um, but the idea of fruits and vegetables, uh, that's, that's good stuff. You know, fried food, not so much. Uh, but fruits and vegetables and having fresh foods. You know, Northerners didn't eat that kind of stuff. Southerners did. They, they really did dine. And this idea of an extended uh, experience of eating was something Southerners did really well uh, all throughout uh, Southern history. And then the last piece of the week, uh, just kind of a, a brief summary, Ca- Cook's Cave by David Crumb. On Friday, it talks about a man named Alfred Cook who was essentially dragged into the war because in Missouri, because his family, the Yankees came in and uh, attacked his family, and you saw this a lot. You want to know why Southerners fought in the war? This story of Alfred Cook. This is why they fought in the war because they weren't left alone. He just wanted to be left alone. When he was invaded, he fought, and this is this. I mean, you you find to a man, a lot of Southerners said that. We're only fighting because they're invading. If they would just go home, we'd stop fighting. That's pretty much it. Go home, and we won't fight you anymore. Let us have our independence, and we'll stop fighting you. So, that's a key. I mean, this is this fierce independence, localism, people in place and family, more important than anything else. And, of course, Alfred Cook was killed uh, by the Union Army. Uh, But... This is an important part of the Southern tradition and the Southern story, and it's why we ran this piece this week. All right. So, a lot of cool stuff this week. And again, going back to our mission, if you like what we do, consider that donation to the Institute. Uh, it does help us produce all of these things and keep this stuff going. And you, of course, you can donate online. Just go to the main webpage, abbeyvilleinstitute.org, and click on the, uh, the button right at, as you come up on the website. It's, it's uh, pretty, I mean, it's right there in front of you. It'll say, you know, donate. So click on that button and you're good to go. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day.